Welcome to the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Smelser. The Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast is the shared journey of building a real estate investment property business from square one. Join me as we learn together how to conquer the real estate game to reach financial freedom. Together, we will learn from people in all areas of real estate and business in our personal trek towards escaping the rat race. Be you. Do the work you love. Play the long game. Before we get started, I wanted to ask that you check out my book, Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals. The book was written to document my process of building my investment portfolio from square one, and I think this could really benefit you as well. The book has gotten five-star reviews so far, which I'm really proud of. You can find the book on Amazon in either physical or Kindle format, as well as any other book retailer. Check it out. What's up, everybody? It's Josiah with the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast, back to bring you a lot of value through an episode with AJ Osborne. AJ has been a guest of the show in the past. He's a good friend of mine. He's killing it in self-storage, and he's got a new book out. His book is titled Growing Wealth and Self-Storage. This is, if you're interested in investing in self-storage, this is the book for you. So go check this book out. Hit the bestseller list recently and um, just really excited for AJ and uh, this book. So this episode, we're going to talk about his book. We're going to talk about the life event that occurred um, that really made a massive impact on him and how his real estate investments basically saved his financial well-being and basically saved his family during that time. It's a it's a crazy story. It's um, it's an amazing story, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. But we're also going to talk about just the differences in residential and commercial real estate investing, and um, how you can do commercial investing um, just like AJ is. So, uh, without further ado, let's bring AJ in. AJ, man. We've had you on the show before. I'm super, super excited to have you back. You're one of my favorite people, favorite investors. And you've got this awesome book now, which I'm looking forward to talking about. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be on. It's good to see you again, man. Yeah, man, the pleasure's on this end. So uh, if you have not listened to the episode I had with AJ Osborne previously on my show, you need to go check that out. AJ is a phenomenal guy. He and I met at Brandon Turner's Real Estate Mastermind in Hawaii. Uh, We got to be friends. AJ also runs his own podcast, which I want him to share with you. You need to check that out as well. But AJ is killing it in self-storage. And he's written this book, which is titled Growing Wealth in Self-Storage. And it was a bestseller, right, AJ? I just found that out. So you guys need to pick up this book. And we're going to talk about this book today. But I I want AJ to, I want to, for people who didn't hear your story briefly, and this is part of the book. I want I want to dive into your story, which is one of the most phenomenal stories I've ever heard. Uh, your chapter one in this book is titled "How I Found Self Storage and How It Saved Me," and I would love to. I, we don't have to spend the entire show on this, but it's such a phenomenal story that I would love to to hit it at a high level at least and talk about how real estate investing actually saved your financial well being and what you went through if you're willing to share it again. 
course. Absolutely, man. Um, it's, it's, you know, something I'm passionate about and, uh, cause it meant so much. Um, my, yeah, I, I got four kids. So my three year old, three and a half year old now, um, had just been born and I started investing, um, lightly in real estate. So I started uh, buying storage facilities and some commercial assets in the early two thousands. Um, but it was more of just kind of a diversification model. It wasn't really replacing my income, anything like that. And uh, I was in sales, uh, insurance sales, and we made good money. But um, when it was, oh man, this is about eight, nine years ago when uh, uh, I had a bad deal that was an acquisition that I did of a brokerage firm. It went totally south, but totally, it was, you know, fraudulent, but it was, you know, my fault. I screwed the pooch. I, I bought a bad deal and went south. And so um, it was at that time, the reason it went south was the person we bought it from, their spouse went out and took our business. So we, you have contracts and insurance with your clients, right? And they pay you a commission based upon their insurance. And we do it B2B, it's companies. And so when I, when I bought the business, um, you're buying essentially those revenue streams, right? Um, those commission streams. So we bought it, but then the person we sold it to had his wife go to the client and sign over those commission streams to her. Oh, so wow. they, they, we bought it for them for millions. Then they went and took the revenue. And uh, so it was, wow. and, and two people are like, well, that can happen. This was three months after we bought it. Mm. And so it was, uh, um, and uh, so it was, it was a bad scenario, a yeah. really bad. Um, and I, it, as much as I want to blame them, it was my fault. I, I shouldn't have done the deal. I should have, it was, it, it's, it, it would have been avoided if I just wouldn't have done it. And, uh, um, but it, it taught me something very valuable. And that was the fact that, um, before that, you know, I really felt like I was in charge of my own life because I was in sales. I was in charge of my, you know, like you get paid on commission. If I wanted to work more, I just go work more. Mm -hmm. And I loved that aspect about it. But what I found out shortly, you know, after was I, I really actually didn't own that revenue stream, right? That mm -hmm. revenue stream um, wasn't mine and they could leave me. They had every right to leave me at any, any given time. And, uh, they did So it's a very risky model, a very risky model to build, but really what it came down to is I was still on a treadmill as if I had a W2. The only right. difference was I had a lot of bosses and they could all fire me anytime. And, and I just realized I was never getting off that treadmill. So then I was like, Hey, I got to make changes, right? Mm. I got to get into real estate in a big way because I had this thought it was twofold. I'm like, what happens if I can't work? And also what happens if, first of all, I don't want to work or anything, but I wanted to grow. I wanted to have progress, right? I didn't want to be running and doing the same thing every single day forever. I wanted options. I wanted opportunities. Um, and that kind of income or that kind of way to generate revenue, just like a W-2, does not provide those options. They're just non-existent. And so I thought real estate allows you to compound, Right. You can buy something, it separates your time from money, and then you can repeat the same action and you can scale. And if I scale, you know, I could own the storage facilities that I have now that I've owned for, you know, 
decade plus, um, I could own those in 50 years and give those to my kids and they're never going to go away. They're just going to be worth more. And so that is, and I could keep doing my own thing. If I wanted today, I could go get a job and they're still going to pay me and it's still mm. going to rate. So it, it, the, that opportunity and option is what I was looking forward to and wanted. So we started getting and really building our, our real estate business and, and we started doing this for years. Well, after about four years, right when I got to the point, where I'd basically gotten to a point where I could replace my income. Like, I, I kid you not, it was like the quarter of, like that quarter, it was in the third third quarter. And in the third quarter, um, I was down at an event um, in California with, with my family. Um, my parents, uh, who my dad's my business partner, and my wife, and our newborn baby, right? cute adorable little baby and I, I i got sick and uh, um you know long story short it, you know i don't want to take up the whole time with it but um I, I i ended up my legs stopped working on me um we'd come home and the next day they'd started hurting the, the day before the next day they stopped working i couldn't i couldn't even get out of the tub i was in the tub because they were hurting and i couldn't leave my wife took me to the hospital three days later um, I was you know, completely paralyzed. They put me into a coma. And when I woke up, I was mm. paralyzed from head to toe. I was mm. uh, quadriplegic. And uh, um, I lied in bed. They, they you know, hooked me up to tubes and life support to keep me alive because um, I couldn't breathe, nothing. Um, and I, I laid that way for you know, 10 weeks, not even being able to communicate. I couldn't even talk. Mm. And uh, then from there... Um, I, I started to regain the ability to, to communicate, to talk. And uh, um, I was in the hospital for three, four months. Um, and then they sent me home paralyzed still. I went home mm-hmm. to a bed where my wife and our four children and our new baby, who spent his first year of life lying in bed next to me. And um, so uh, I obviously was no longer able to work. And my boss, in fact, came to the hospital to inform me that I was no longer employed. And mm-hmm. uh, um, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be in that position and have your employer walk in and say, hey, I know you're in a crappy spot, but it's going to get a lot worse. Your income's gone now. You don't have a job. Mm-hmm. And sit there and say, I got four kids. And my wife's full-time job is taking care of me. Um, I can't do anything for myself. I mean, I couldn't even bathe. Nothing, right? There was nothing I could do for myself. Um, And to have her say, I have to leave you paralyzed. I have to leave our four kids and I have to get a job so we could even try to keep our home that we lived in, right? Um, And luckily that, that wasn't the case. I lost my job, but I had real estate and it mm-hmm. continued to pay the bills. My wife could take care of me and we could stay at home with our four kids and take care of our kids and have them around. And she didn't have to go get a job. And uh, we kept our house and our kids maintained a normal life, except dad was no longer normal, but uh, they didn't, it was, they, they could go play with friends. They, you know what I mean? It wasn't all of a sudden, you know, your whole life is shattered and, and that allowed us to get better. That allowed our family to heal and that allowed me to grow and regain 
a lot of the usage that I have today. My lower legs are still uh, partially paralyzed. I don't have full mobility in my ankles or feet, but I got out of my leg braces um, last, uh, last six, seven months. And so I'm no longer in leg braces and I don't need assistance to walk. Um, which is awesome. I'm not mm-hmm. running or playing sports or anything else like that. But for all intents and purposes, if I'm out and about, um, nobody would notice anything different. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it's it's been a ride, but uh, it, it, that is kind of why, and why I talk about in the book, why, why this is so important to me and why real estate makes all the difference and made all the difference for us and uh, us in our lives. Amazing, incredible story. And what what was the name, if you don't mind sharing, what was the name yeah. of what happened to you? Yeah, it's called Guillaume Barre. Uh-huh. Or excuse me, Guillaume Barre, not Guillaume. It looks like Guillaume, but it's mm-hmm. Guillaume Barre. It's it, it's a French term that um this is this is a new relatively new thing. So they didn't really start understanding what this was until the eighties. And um since the eighties, most people misdiagnosed it. In fact, they think a lot of people that recovered from polio really well, didn't even ever have polio. Mm. It was Guillain-Barre, but nobody understood what it was. And Mm. so most people were put on, that were in my case, were put in iron lungs or whatever it was, you know, before that. Um, But in the 90s, in the early 1900s, um, a guy by the name of Guillain-Barre or or something like that, I don't know, I don't speak Mm -hmm. right, but it was named after him because he was the first one to address and say, hey, there's something else going on here, and it's not polio. It's not these other things. Sure. We don't know what it is, and, but nobody really paid attention or they couldn't quantify it or whatever right. it was. And then it wasn't until the 80s and early 90s that they started saying, whoa, this is, there's something totally different that none of us have even realized is going on here. And when for, it's when your white blood cells, so it's like an autoimmune um, I don't want to say disorder because it's not hereditary. You don't catch it. It's not anything like that. It, it's a triggered, as mm-hmm. they say. Mm-hmm. So um, it happens to one in a million or two million people. There's They don't know why necessarily. They tend to know how the triggers happen. So mm-hmm. you're triggered by a infection or a virus because mm-hmm. what happens is your antibodies, your white blood cells um, go to attack the infection or virus and somewhere in the process of that, they get confused mm. and they identify your nervous system, your central nervous system as a threat. Then it goes overboard. Then it's like, you have this everywhere. It's all over your body, right? right. So we have nerves all over our body. And it starts producing white blood cells at mass. And they sever the communication of your brain to your body. And so when I was in the hospital, I was in the hospital sitting there paralyzed and they're like, they couldn't even admit me because they were like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfectly healthy, except for the fact that you're paralyzed. Yeah. Um, and they couldn't figure out why. And nobody understood what was going on. So wow. um, I sat paralyzed for two days. Mm. And Terrifying. Then it, yeah, and no one could even figure out what the heck was going on. Mm. But. Well, this is this is what's crazy about this story is I had you on my podcast. You shared this story, one of the most phenomenal stories I've ever heard. And then my sister's brother-in-law had the exact same thing happen. And I sent him our podcast interview. He listened to it, said he was crying. He was so encouraged by your story. 
Like it's been really bad for him, but he is recovering. But I shared your story with him and he had the exact same thing happen. And um, it was such an encouragement to hear your story. So, you know, you sharing this is helping people that are going through the same thing. Uh, So thank you so much for, for being transparent, sharing what you went through. How's how's he doing? He's doing better. He's, he's, he's trending up. He's, he's gone through kind of a similar experience as you, he wasn't 100% paralyzed like you were, but I mean, he had all kinds of crazy issues and pain and, and loss of use of different parts of his body and, and issues in his face. And I mean, it was just a nightmare. And he did again, they didn't know what was wrong with him for a long time. They just thought his body was just going haywire. And um, yeah, I'll, um, I've been keeping up with it, praying for his full recovery and stuff. And he's doing so much better. So, good, um, good. but yeah, I sent, I sent him your story when he was at the worst of it and it really encouraged him a lot. So that's um, awesome. Yeah. But you well, know, to, you said, to tell him if, if he wants, I, I, I would love to touch base with him. Yeah, and talk absolutely. With him. I would love to connect the two of yeah. you because I know that it, would it's one of those things is a lot of people know, and this has to do with entrepreneurship and business and everything. It's funny how we experience things in life, how yep. you can, you can know something, but not understand it. Right. right? And it, I, I talked a lot about this with investing in entrepreneurship entrepreneurship. You know that it's right. You know you're supposed to be investing. You know real estate is beneficial. You know if you do it, you'll be you you'll you'll get it 10 years. But we don't do these things. Lots of right. times it's because even though you know it, you don't understand it. Right. And so like you know, people that are going through this, even when I was going through the hospital, right, there was no one that understood what, what was happening. Right. I was in, in most of all the doctors and nurses cases, I was the first person that they'd ever seen or treated with this. Mm-hmm. So and within, you know, literally one month, I knew more than all they did. Right, right. Because I could tell them, and we would, we'd say, this is what's going on. This is how you have to treat me. And this is what you need to do. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, th- that's the reason that we listen to podcasts. That's yeah, the reason we have these conversations. Because somebody that understands something more than know, they understand it and communicate it with others. They can help to try to help others um, gain confidence. And like when I started Absolutely. real estate investing, that was a huge thing we did. Like there was this barrier where I got it and I knew, but I didn't want to pull the trigger on my first deal. Yeah. And it's because I knew it, but I didn't understand it. And right. that, that lack of understanding in, um, embeds risk, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's things that I know that I don't know. I may not know what it is, but I know there's all the stuff out there that I could be walking into, stepping into a hole or stepping into a trap because I don't understand all the functionality of buying a home or refinancing, and getting new renters in. And so I don't exactly understand the risks that may be, but when you partner up with somebody or you have a mentor, you're listening to podcasts or you're reading books that helps you understand what happened through the process a lot better. And that eliminates risk, right? Absolutely. So yeah. I, I love this, you know, that, that whole entire aspect of, of, of going from knowing something to understanding because those two things are not the same. Very, very different and wonderful point. And what I love about what you're saying is you're, you're describing the transition from depending on others to being self-sufficient, right? And, yes. and not, not in, a, not in a, a self-righteous way, but in a smart way, right? It's, it's, we all have the ability to make a change in our life that, that will allow us to be self-sufficient from the way we've invested our income. And when you were doing this, 
uh, insurance business, you're making great money. You you may, you're making business decisions based off of the cash flow on that portfolio, but you quickly found out that that could easily be taken away through actions that weren't even of your own, right? Somebody came in and fraudulently did something that you didn't know about that screwed your whole deal up. That wasn't necessarily your fault, but the difference in that scenario and in owning self storage that's producing income is you own the asset. You own the, go- the goose that's laying, laying the golden eggs and it doesn't stop when you're in a hospital bed and can't move. Whereas insurance, managing an insurance portfolio, you have to um, be there. Yeah. yeah. You have to be there. You're, it's a difference in working on your business versus in your business. Exactly. And that is like the biggest, like the, going back to the e-myth, Michael Gerber, I always try to think about that when I'm looking at what I'm doing with my time. I'm always trying to move myself out of working in my business to working on my business. So setting up systems to repeat the, the, the moves that are creating financial freedom for me and moving me out of spending all my time doing an activity, right? So yeah. if you're doing insurance sales, you're limited by how many sales you can make, how much time you can spend with those clients. Even if you, you know, if you build an insurance company now and you hire other people to do the insurance work for you, now you're at a higher level, you're working on the business. So that's a way to create systems. But the bad thing about that is if your guys can't sell insurance for whatever reason, if something happens in the economy mm-hmm. and now your business dries up, you yeah. go over here to self-storage and you've created a cash flow machine with this that doesn't require you to be in there. And you can also create systems to manage the asset, which you've created a business. You're working on your business with the systems you've, you've created. And so I, I love what you've done. I admire how you've been able to scale this thing. Um, let's talk about for those that aren't from or for those that have thought about investing in self storage. This is obviously the book for them, right? And again, the title of the book is "Growing Wealth and Self Storage." You need to go get get a copy. Why self storage? Why is this a good asset class to invest in? Self storage is such an interesting asset class. So, and you, you kind of mentioned this, you know, like. The difference between working on your business as opposed to in it, and I, I talked to you know Brandon a lot of, about this on the Bigger Pockets interview, um, and uh, it, it's a it kind of a, a theme that I have, and everything we do. So I buy online businesses. I you know have service based businesses. We have um, several other different types of company, and it's around the theme of high impact um, decision making. And, um, uh, like if I'm going to do something, I want to be a high impact real estate investor. I want to be a high impact business owner. And the way that the difference of being a, um, working on your business is if the time that you spend making high impact decisions and working on high impact things, what are high impact decisions? What are high impact things? Those are things that move the needle. Those are things that grow the actual business right? So me working with an individual tenant has very low impact on the business, the revenue model, right? It has, in fact, if you were looking at the financial state statement, if I spent 20% of my time every single day working with our tenants inside, inside a storage facility, you would see zero impact on the Mm -hmm. overall success of my business. Correct. And so 
when I look at the things that I have to be focusing on and working on, I wanted to put myself in a position where I was making high impact decisions. How do I move the business to the next level? How do I get another deal? How do I make the right partnerships? How do I secure funding? All those kind of things that make a huge impact on our business, our employees, and our, and our whole entire model. Well, when I start looking at certain assets and when I was getting started, I wanted things that would make a big impact or things that I could do to the business. Self-storage leaned itself very, very much to me for that reason. There was multiple levers to impact the revenue of that individual asset. As in, I could go in and buy an underperforming facility and turn it around. So what that set up though is I need inventory or I need a runway. I need things that I can buy and I need to be able to make an impact. Well, self-storage industry overall, I felt that I could make an impact um, the reason being is self-storage is one of the newest industries um, that there is. And self-storage um, has about 70 plus percent of all the inventory on the market, which is huge, more than Starbucks, McDonald's combined and other, you know, and so there's lots of these things. And um, the vast majority, 70 plus percent are run by mom and pops, single operators, and they are old. So not not old by like I'm saying they were built in the 1900s, but it's an old business model. Mm -hmm. And the people that started, I mean, you got to remember self storage started in the 70s and 80s. This is the newest real estate asset class out there. In fact, institutions didn't get involved in it until after 2008 because their models couldn't predict how it would survive a severe recession. Mm. So there was the inherent things that kept the self storage industry down. And people looked at it. I mean, now self-storage is so hot, right? Everybody wants to talk about it. And it's like, it's it's becoming all of a sudden, well, what should you invest in? Should you invest in, you know, multifamily, commercial, or self-storage? No one, that self-storage was not in the lineup before mm-hmm. 2008. Sure. It was a junkyard industry, right? Mm-hmm. When I got into it, I didn't tell people I was buying storage facilities because I was kind of embarrassed. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't something that That's I was funny. like, yeah, I, I, I own self-storage facilities. I didn't tell people that. Yeah. Right? Um, and so with, what happened, though, with it is people realized this is an absolute necessity. And yeah. two, the economics of self-storage are incredible. So let me, I'm going to talk about, first of all, the industry. I'll finish up this, and then I'm going to talk about the future of it and the economics that are propelling it and where it's going. So um, now that self-storage is uh, being understood a lot better, one of the reasons before people didn't like it was it was operationally weird. And Mm so everybody that was in it though, they were all real estate people, developers, Mm -hmm. things like that, right? Where I had a theory saying, this isn't even a real estate asset class. So look at all these people that own it. They're all real estate people, but this is mm-hmm. a business. I need to focus on marketing, revenue management, dynamic pricing. Mm-hmm. I need to focus on uh, retail sales outlook. When they come in, we need uniforms. You need to be presentable. It acted more as retail than mm-hmm. it did real, real estate. There's not a lease up and walk away. It's month to month, right? Mm-hmm. We got customers coming in and out every single day and I want to sell them insurance and I want to boxes and cleaning supplies and packaging, right? And then mm-hmm. I've got to get those people in there and who's my highest paying customer. And, you know, there's these business aspects to it. And so, and I, uh, I, I think, you know, I really started, people started 
hearing a lot more about me because in, I, I gave a couple, I was asked to speak uh, at their national conventions a couple of times. And I, and I did two things that I, I think maybe were controversial, but I got a lot of noise from. I said, first of all, this self-storage isn't real estate. It's not, it's a business. And then second, I said, occupancy doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. not important. I don't even, it's nothing that I even look at. And before the model was you own a passive real estate asset, self-storage, there's no toilets. So that means it's good. And it was the fact that um, uh, it was a good asset if it was fully occupied. Mm. And I'm like, that's a different model. That this You're talking about uh, uh, multifamily. You're talking about assets that pricing is standardized, right? So yeah, the more occupied you are, the better because there's standardized pricing. Right. Well, that's not how self-storage works. And so I started saying, guys, there's so much more you can do that no one's doing. And the differential between this old model, this old real estate model that they had and a new, more dynamic model, the spread in what you could do was huge. So for me, I'm like, there's these levers that I can buy all this existing inventory. Remember when I got started, it was like 85% of every single storage facility was owned by a mom and pop single operator at the time Mm -hmm. because institutions didn't play in this asset class. Um, And that's obviously changed after 2008, but there's all this inventory and I can buy them and transfer them over, operate them like a business. And the spread is huge. I can make a lot of money. I can turn around, I can refinance it and I can deploy it again. So that, that for me, the industry, I'm like, there's, there's so much that can happen. There's so much that can go. It's been going to consolidate, but I can be a part of that consolidation where I felt in other asset classes, I was behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to compete and I didn't know how to. So that's what I love about self-storage. And that's why I got into it. Now, the economics of self-storage, and there was this weird thing when I was in it, people are like, yeah, man, everybody's going to wake up one day and realize they don't need storage. And, and two, everybody was like, that's the first thing that's going to go in a recession. Everybody mm-hmm. said that. They're like, that's the first thing that's going to go in a recession. And you, you, that was a, that was a fundamentally a misconception of the economics that drive the self-storage industry. So the economics and why self-storage is not only good today, but is only getting better and will only continue to get better are twofold, consumer and business. So let's let's break down these two things. You, your consumers, your price of square footage is skyrocketing. It has been, right? It has been since the 80s, since the 60s. Um, housing is more unaffordable than it's ever been, and it's not changing. It's, it's not like all of a sudden we're going to have less demand in the United States. It's, those things are really real estate prices are going to continue to go up. Mm-hmm. They will always. Wages are stagnating. The United States is not nearly as competitive as we were. There's less economic fruit, so to speak, to be had. There's less economic gain to squeeze out of the U.S. economy. We are a consumer-based economy now. And what happens is that we all make really good money. We all want to buy things and have this lifestyle, right? Um, That creates two problems. First of all, we're very concerned on how we look, what we have, things like that. But consumer ability to purchase has dropped. So our ability to purchase consumer goods compared to the 80s is, I mean, you're buying at a fraction of the cost. And two, today, you can finance anything, right? You can finance a a, a microwave if you want. You couldn't finance anything in the early 
you know, 90s. It was like credit right. cards were this thing that only the rich had. Well, that's not true. You can buy anything and finance anything today. So our ability to own, buy, and consume has skyrocketed and has just gotten so much cheaper. And it can get shipped straight to your door the day of. It's so mm-hmm. much easier. <clears throat> Yet our ability to house those things has just tanked. And there's another reason why consumers are getting hit with their ability to store. You can't go just park an RV in most neighborhoods now. So laws and neighborhood rules and cities have been like, your house can't look junky. You can't have crap on your lawn. You can't park RVs out. You can't be working on your, you know, Nine, uh, you know, your 1960 Mustang out outside. You can't do those things anymore. So then everybody's like, well, now I have all the stuff that I want. I want to put it somewhere. And well, just go buy a house with an extra thousand square feet. Like, well, did I get a 20% increase in my pay? I didn't. So I can't do that. Right. So um, all of a sudden they need options and storage is flooding and, and is becoming more relevant. Mm-hmm. Now you have the second side, the economics of business. Business is the new frontier for cell storage because businesses are decentralizing. They're breaking apart. And you have a last mile problem where businesses need to get things to consumers and they need to do it at bases. So all of a sudden we see businesses, Red Bull, all sorts of people, they're using storage to deliver, ship goods. You have home-based businesses that are growing like mad and they're running their business out of a storage facility. Yeah. And this is just happening more and more and more. So the economics of self-storage right are now, growing. They're right, getting better. Right, right, right now, now with, co- with COVID going on, yeah, people are forced to work from home, uh, probably leery to maybe renew their leases on their commercial space. Bingo. They go, like, I work from home. I run my appraisal business out of my house. Um, yeah. if, I, if I were to acquire a bunch of inventory, which I don't need for appraisal, right? But saying like, let's say I'm running a different business out of my house. I got to have a place to store it, right? So you're looking at buying a bigger house, building something on your lot or finding storage. Well, when you, when you run the numbers and you're like, okay, I got to go through zoning and planning and get this thing approved. And then it's going to cost me this much per square foot to add onto my house. Or I can go over here and rent this space from AJ for a month at a time for this price. And you look at the numbers, you're like, wow, I'm spending a lot less money and have a lot quicker ramp up to being able to house my inventory if I go just rent self-storage. And it's month to month. It's month so to month. Yeah. If your business tanks or takes hard time, no big deal. Stop. Leave. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't pay it anymore. And the thing and another thing too, AJ, that that I think is gonna gonna continue to fill self-storage spaces is this idea that like like you said, Americans love to acquire stuff. And, and even this movement of minimalism, okay, require, like when you move out of a 3,000 square foot house into a 1,200 square foot house, where are you going to put all the stuff you inherited from your grandparents that you want to keep? Bingo. You got to put it somewhere. And the yeah. attic's not big enough in a lot of these houses, right? So you could move, you could cut your bills down from your housing down from 2,500 a month to 1,000 a month, but you don't have enough space. So you may go rent a hundred dollar a month storage unit, and you've gone from twenty five hundred a month to eleven hundred a month. You're still saving a lot of money, and that's where your stuff gets filled up, right? So, 
I see a number minimalism. Right. Like right. Minimalism, you, not only do you downsize and you need someone to play, you don't want liabilities, things like that, but also too, minimalism, which was really big um, amongst millennials. Well, it's amazing once you both get jobs and you have kids, how how all of a sudden you start to acquire things, right? Yep. And yep. Um, as of right now, millennials are the biggest consumers in the world. So the mo- um, minimal generation are the largest consumers in the world. <laughs> how ironic, right? Yes. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I love it, man. I mean, I, so like, how does somebody, and chapter three in your book talks about this. How does somebody get started in self-storage? You know, and this is the great thing about self-storage that I love. It's a commercial asset that you can start relatively small. So um, I have an inner circle, which is kind of like a, a mastermind thing that we do. But I I brought the group a, a, a deal that was 600000 And it's a self-storage deal that can be turned around and everything else. And it's got 200 units. Mm-hmm. It's a good deal, right? So you can get started. And I, I got to tell you, I don't know how many markets... But I bet you 30% of all markets, 600,000 is barely going to get you a duplex. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to get a duplex yeah. for 600,000 in at least seven states. Right. At least. And they are the most populated states in the nation. So that's not a crazy en- entry price to right. commercial. Sure. And so all of a sudden, if I'm going 500,000 to a million dollars gets me started in a commercial real estate asset that is low risk, diversified with upside. And two, that's the place where nobody's looking. I am not going to go buy a storage facility that's 15,000 square feet or 10,000 square feet or 5,000 square feet. I'll never do it. I'm not touching anything that's less than 60,000 square feet. Mm. So most big investors and the uh, people that keep growing in the industry, they're never looking at those deals. So those deals are just for the taking for people getting started. And most of the major marketplaces in the United States, institutional investors are not going into. Mm-hmm. So you got to remember, self-storage is still new. So you may go to, you know, Birmingham, Alabama to get a multifamily uh, storage complex, but, or it's a multifamily uh, uh, uh uh, asset, but you, an institutional investor that's, you know, Wall Street stuff, they're not going there for storage. They're, sure. they're, you know, it's still concentrated in the major. If you look at all the REITs, if you look at um, all the biggest player players in storage and where their assets are, it's the smiley face. It's coastal. They don't go <laughs> anywhere in. Mm-hmm. It was just in Boise, Idaho, which has been the fastest growing market in the United States for eight straight years, they've exploded, right? It's hit the Forbes top top three list every single year in almost every single category. And they're adding, uh, it's the highest income growth rate. I assume they just now got a REIT. Like, wow, that's crazy. It's, I mean, it's insane. And yeah. uh, it's that's how so many markets are. Hmm. Um, so, there's a lot of availability for these smaller facilities, which no institutional investors will go to in these markets, which nobody's looking at. Yeah. So in a market where you got to pay a five cap for an apartment building, you can probably get a seven or an eight cap in storage. Hmm. And and you said you wouldn't touch anything below 60,000 square feet. How big was this deal that you brought to your mastermind group? 
It was 15. 15,000. And did your mastermind group invest in that together? How did y'all tackle that? They're looking at it right now. We got cool. two, two of them are trying to decide which one's going to buy it. Um, so yeah, it's awesome. It's yeah. We, we, we take to them like, so I do, I started a wholesale company. Um, and so for me, I'm trying to get off market deals and you know, sure. this is part of the scaling. So when we looked at it, it goes back to how we you do things. So for me, the biggest impact I could make on my business was I could increase my deal flow. Sure. So I started a wholesaling company to find off market deals. We hired a bunch of people and we're setting it up. Um, and we have wholesale partners. Most of the deals in self storage are off market. You're not, they don't take them to the market to compete. I've never sure. bought a deal on market ever. And when you look at these transactions that are not taking place on the regular market, it's either, you know, local or doing the work or who, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when we find all these deals, which is actually probably the vast majority of deals in the United States, I'm not even going to go after them. Right. Sure. And so they're just completely under the radar. And uh, uh, so, yeah, we take all those and I give, and I take those deals to, to our group, but that what I love about it is there's so much deal flow to be had, right? There's, it's, I love it. Yeah. Is your wholesale awesome. group, is your wholesale group just doing self-storage? Or are you doing one no, family? Doing single, or what? Uh, we do single family homes okay. right now and um, storage. And then we're going to go into other commercial assets as well. Very the, cool. Yeah. The thing about the wholesaling and with my salespeople that I had in there is, um, as you know, commercial assets, the sales cycle and the sell, when I say sales cycle, I mean the buying process. So if you're out there and you're looking at buying um, family homes. And this is a really important differential that you know, and I know, and we've talked about, and you you figured out in a big way, um, the economics of single family homes. Um, I dislike greatly. In fact, I hate it. And it's not that they're not amazing investments because they are. But the reason I don't like them is I don't understand how to price them because that is based upon sentiment, not numbers, right? So I can't evaluate or expect a asset to become a certain price. I, I can't do that because that's based upon what people like, what they want, the regional economy, everything like that, right? If I buy a cash flowing asset, I can say, if I can improve, improve the revenues, it doesn't really matter. It's going to yeah. sell for X amount of price. And that's based upon a business function. Yeah. So when you go into commercial real estate and when you look at scaling, and you look at um, buying and building up, um, there is a longer tail because there's less inventory, right? The great thing about single family homes is they're everywhere. That's the amazing thing about them. So anybody getting started, it's a wonderful place to get started because you have so many options. So um, what I had to do is I had to merge the two together because as salespeople, they need to get paid, right? And I need to get deals coming through. So the single family homes provides volume. Um, but the big stuff, which can have a longer tail, as you mm-hmm. know, and I know, right. If you want to find a good commercial asset, you don't want to make mistakes. You got to underwrite it. You want to look at it and the process of just buying it, it just takes longer. Sure. So we have those two divisions. So we are, we're doing vol, uh, we're doing volume transactions and then quality on the commercial side, which we're going to start, um, doing, I'm hoping in the next six months, uh, yeah. part two, which Sweet. I'm not going to be buying those. So I'll be calling you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please do, man. That's what I was going to say. Like, you know, I, I, I'm also interested in the self storage stuff, man. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm about the financial freedom part of all this. So yeah. it's, 
you know, and I love, I love what you're saying about single family. And this is, this is a frustrating part of single family investing for a lot of people. Single family properties trade off of the sales aspect of the property. They trade off as, as, you know, as an appraiser, they trade off of the sales comparison approach. You're looking at what properties similar to this property have sold for, right? Because a lot of people are buying them and moving into these houses as primary residences. It's not about the income, the ability of the property to produce income. And it can even be frustrating when you own a rental property, you go in there and you buy it, you fix it up, you increase the ability for it to make more money rental wise, you rent it out at a higher rate than it's been rented in the past. And then an appraiser will come in and they'll just pull the sales comparison approach and tag it with a price that's not based off of the income producing ability, which they should if they're a good appraiser. Yeah. But they simplify it too much and just appraise it based on sales comparison. Yes. Switch over here to commercial assets like self-storage, apartments, mobile home parks, on down the line, it's trading off of its income producing ability and a cap rate, right? So when you know the cap rate in your market and you say, hey, I can I can increase the NOI on this thing 10% at this cap rate, that creates this much value. It's something you can you can predict, right? With a fair level yeah. of certainty. And that's what you've been able to do to create so much value in your portfolio with that Kmart deal. Always talk about that. But yeah, yeah. well, too, it's predictable. So for me, I need some things that are very, very, I I need a repeatable process that can be repeated. I know how to repeat it and it can be done at scale. So one of the things I had, and and you talk about this and it always reminds me, and and I get so confused because I don't understand when I, when I sold my uh, uh, two homes, so my last home, we were selling it at 240000 We had a sister home, which looked exactly the same on the other side of the neighborhood, right? Um, and we had several people that were coming in and they were putting in offers at 240000 The guy that had our sister home on the other side of the neighborhood, he had to go take a job and move to Arizona like immediately. So he had to sell it like immediately. He sold it for $200,000. When he sold it for $200,000, every single person pulled their offer. And <laughs> yeah. they're like, we can no longer get financing at two forty. dollars So it's not that my house couldn't have sold at two forty. dollars The market was there. My whole house sold for $210,000. Mm-hmm. I lost $30,000 because something that somebody else did blew my mind at how not logical that was. Yeah, I'm like, totally. that doesn't even make sense. Now take my new house. So my new house that I bought and I just sold um, as of a week ago, last year we got it appraised and we were going to put it on the market for $950,000, right? And their appraiser came back. He said, this is what you can sell for. On and on and on. This year came back and we sold it for 1.2 million because we had a neighbor that sold their house at a square foot processing. So the person that bought my house paid 250,000 more <laughs> because some neighbor sold something right across the way. Yeah. And I'm like, for me, I'm like, whoa, this is, that stuff's scary to me because I'm like, it's so inefficient. How yeah. I, right. How it's just, that's just how my brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas storage, I walk in and I can say, this is what your revenue, this is what your expenses, here's your gross net, right? Without, uh, without loans or anything else. Um, then that should be trade in this kind of market at a seven cap. Yeah. Here's the price. 
I don't care what Bob sold his down the road for because Bob could be making half as much money exactly. as this one is. That doesn't change the value of this one. Right, so exactly. My assets can trade for millions more than yeah. a guy down the road. So yeah. if I run it better, I reap the rewards. Right. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, and as you should. And the thing that I love about commercial real estate is that you can pull these levers, pull the lever of NOI, you know, increasing NOI through a number of different ways. One is increasing rents, right? Another is decreasing expenses. So you can go into a self-storage deal that, that's existing, that's 60,000 square feet, build another 20,000 square feet, decrease expenses, increase the rent, and you've increased your capacity now your NOI is so much better, right? And you're using that same market cap or it might even, you might even have improved this thing and be able to use a lower cap. And you're now able to say, well, hey, this thing's going to be worth this. So you can back into these numbers. It's a math equation. If I go in at 60,000 square feet, I add 20,000 square feet. I increase rents to market rent and, and, you know, and then I increase the efficiency of this whole thing and I decrease expenses here. Here's my NOI divided by my cap rate, this is what this will be worth when I go refi. And that's how people make so much money doing commercial real estate. Exactly. That's how you've been so I successful. Call, what you're explaining, I call money on the table. And this is the fundamental principle of my entire book. Like, So it, it's literally a playbook. How do you, not knowing anything, how do you get started? Not just get started though, but how do you make a lot of money? And how you do it is by identifying missed value, i.e., the money that's sitting on the table that the yep. owner has and they're just not taking it off the table. Yeah. So when I look at a facility that's selling for 3 million, I go, oh, nice, that's 5 million. I'll buy that. That's how it works. It's not. It's literally not more complicated than that. Yeah. I yeah. simply look at something and I say, it's 3 million. Uh, actually, that's 2.5 million. So I'm not going to buy it. I see another one, 3 million, that's 4 million. I'll buy it. And I, <laughs> I immediately yeah. just, like, that's all I do all day long. Yeah. And that's so repeatable for us. And that's how we built over a hundred million in assets. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's something that you can do constantly. That's way lower risk than things. And, and it's funny how people think because they think single family homes are uh, lower risk. And for me, I'm like, no, that's way higher risk. First of all, you're concentrated on one door. Yeah. I got 500. Right. If 15 people leave, I'm like, whatever. I don't even know, nor do I care. Right. Right. Sure. It's, Diversified amongst doors, purposes, and it too. If I don't fill up those doors, guess what I do? I just up my marketing budgets and I lower my rates on those doors and I up my rates on the high demand doors. So there's there's opportunity for me, even in existing facility during hard times, to continually make money and everything. It's the, in, in self-storage, I believe you hold the power to make the asset what mm. you want it to be. And you that. can identify the opportunity once you understand and know actually very easily. Yeah. I love that. I absolutely love that. So how does, how do you finance these things? So there's a it, lot of is ways. Is there like a Fannie, a Fannie and Freddie program for this stuff? Like there is for multifamily or is yeah. it local banks or how do you go it, about financing everything? These? Right, 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 right now banks love self-storage. So, okay. um, we have banks all the time coming to us. Can we, hey, will you write self-storage? Can we do more self-storage deals? Um, <laughs> especially in hard times, right? So the CNBS market shut off. 
like completely where it was like three months ago. It opened up. The first asset it opened up was to storage facilities and they all wanted it. They said, get us storage facilities. We want to put those in our bonds. And Mm. insurance companies, they won. Because the last last recession, they were the highest performing um, asset class Mm. out of any real estate asset class. That's wild. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah. So they, they love it. And so when you look at um, the banking situation, what they don't like though, and this is where, where a lot of people get in trouble, they don't like really inexperienced people and they don't like um, a lot of risk, things like that. So there, and once again, it's not that these are problems, right? You, you don't need experience. You don't need, you just need to understand so you can figure it out. Um, so I love local banks and I love credit unions. And here's why. I live in Idaho. So um, for everyone listening to this podcast, that is not in the Midwest. We are not <laughs> Okay. Uh, so 90% of the United States does not know that. Yeah. Uh, but, so we, we, we are over in the Rocky Mountains and um, we have been growing a lot. So I have, st- I have uh, um, uh, storage facilities in the Midwest. And, and yes, in Iowa, we're buying two. And I know that's confusing. Now. Uh, so you know, we got in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Nevada, Kansas, um, Iowa, and we have under contract everywhere from Tennessee to um, other places. But when you're looking at how you finance these deals, what I found is lots of times, if I'm in Boise, Idaho, whose populations, once again, exploding incomes are going, we have the highest disposable income. Um, it's the just a boom state, everything. We're buying a facility on one of the major roads, right? We call up Wells Fargo and we're talking to their underwriting department in New York City. And they look at it and they go, wow, this is like really rural. Yeah. And I'm like, this looks like a dangerous asset. And we're like, sure. what are you talking about? Yeah. This is one you of, have no idea. This is the highest growth land in the state, right? right. And it's floating. Yeah. And then you go to a local credit union and they're just like, wow, you locked that puppy up. What do you want? We'll give you yeah. anything you want. Yeah, sure. So it, it's the differences. And that's what you need to understand when you're financing these assets you need to go to the people that understand the value that has them. So I look at local banks and credit unions for most people in third tier, fourth tier markets. If you're yeah. in LA, if you're in the first tier markets, if you're in the Sun Belt, it, no, it doesn't matter. You're going to get somebody to it. But for those people, go to the local guys. Credit unions need to deploy capital within their area, within their region they have. That's yeah. how they do it. They have to do it. They can't make money off investing. They can't make money off of fees. So the only way they make money is putting it to work. And lots of them really like storage. Now, if you don't have experience and they say, we really want somebody with experience, what you do is you call a guy like me or somebody else that has a lot of experience and you say, will you co-sponsor the deal? Mm. Then they co-sponsor the deal and the bank's going to write it all day long. That's how you get around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All commercial. As you know, all commercial. Yeah. That's how you get around. Do you, so what's the loan to value requirements and the, and the term that they normally give on these type assets? You're looking at um, 70-30 is you, okay. where, where, where we're at now. And I think that's pretty classic. And that's where I like to be. I like 70-30. I don't want to go above that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the terms are, you know, when we're looking at, we're looking at 15 to 25. Okay. Um, I like 20 
or a lot of them might earn 15. Um, you're not going to be able to usually in the smaller stuff to get non recourse. That's usually reserved for the bigger stuff. And what's, so, what's considered bigger stuff? Is there a certain amount on the loan? Yeah. That- I, I, yeah, there. usually you're going to need to be uh, over a million for sure, okay. I think. And um, they, you know, for non-recourse, they're going to want to look in a good area because right. you got to remember that non-recourse is only based upon the value and the potential of the asset they're putting sure. in there. Sure. So unless, it, so if it's not a really like, you're like, wow, that's a great location, a great facility. Lots of times they're going to go, no, we can't put that in our, in, in our portfolio. Um, sure. So uh, which once again, then you're just going to local like credit unions that don't do non-recourse anyways. And so, um, which we're fine with because what happens is though you're trading recourse and non-recourse, you're trading on terms. Recourse mm-hmm. is extremely stringent and it's really hard to get the loans done. And the paper that they write is not in your favor, right? right. Where credit unions, the the terms are amazing. No prepayment penalties. They got to give us what we want, right? You're saying and you're so, saying non non recourse is in, incredibly stringent, or recourses? Uh, oh, excuse me. Non recourse is incredibly stringent. Yeah, that's what it, I thought. Yeah, okay. they don't let you do what you want with the asset. Right. Right. Recourse. The terms are very very favorable. Sure. So, and that's why I like credit unions too, is because they will give us things like no prepayment penalties, which is a really important part of my business model. Absolutely. I'm turning it around, refinancing, taking my money and doing it again. And what's your so, typical turnaround period on these? Three years. Okay, cool. Three years. So, you're, so, so, so like your bread and butter deal, is it, is it something that you're adding square footage to? Changing no, the actually, rents? It's, or, it's uh, not. It's, it's mostly operational based. We may okay. have cap at, the capital expenditures that we want to put into the office. Okay. Um, but if I was getting my bread and butter deal, it's 80,000 square feet on a good road in a decent market where there's not a lot of great competitors and it's a kind of hands-off owner, mom and pop operated. And we're going to come in, we buy it, we change the operations, we redo rent um, systems mm-hmm. and how the rents are done. Um, and most of the time, we not most of the time, our, our standard is a 20% um, um, return year year, every year. Um, if not, I don't touch it. That's um, great. And then I want a hundred plus return three years by refinancing. So I need nice. 20 plus percent year one, two, and then a hundred plus year three. Are you, are you saying 20% internal rate of return or cash on cash? Cash on cash. Wow. That's really high. Um, is now are you, are you syndicating these? Are you raising money or doing joint started. ventures yeah. or, or do you, are you do these all with your own capital? Uh, so my my portfolio currently uh, over 100 million was all our own capital. We the system that I just described to you is what we did to build it that way. That's phenomenal. It up to that. Now we're we are doing syndication. So I'm trying to get my money to go a lot further. I sure. want 500 million in assets in um, the next five years. So what I did in 15, I want to do in the next five. Um, so we st- I, st- I started a company called Cedar Creek Capital. And uh, I started with that, my um, wholesaling company to feed that company. Yeah, And uh, so with that, yeah, we are now taking uh, credit investors and people want to invest uh, with us. This is new. This is new to us. So we've got yeah. a deal under contract right now that... Um, we have projected to just, it's going to kill it in Kansas city. We close in two and a half weeks and we have investors in that. That's our first deal with investors. I have other ones with partners. Uh, I I have the one, the Kansas city deal, which, so we're we're big on, I have four big box stores 
under contract that we're converting into storage facilities, um, one in Kansas City, two in Iowa. And uh, those deals that we're doing, those on, we're taking investors in now, but our last one we did with partners, um, which is a home run and a great business model if you can do it right. That's awesome, man. Wow. This is super exciting stuff. Well, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell what people where they can connect with you. Are you doing your mastermind again if people are interested in getting involved in that? Yeah, so it's, um, it's really an inner circle because yeah. this is how I do it. And we could talk about this for a second because I love this stuff, right? And I know yeah. you do too. Yeah. Um, I, like we met at um, uh, the, the Hawaii uh, mastermind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me, when I'm meeting people and when I'm working with people, I like knowledgeable people and everything like that. But it's really important to me people's like core being like yeah, who sure. they are. Right. That's, that's why I've loved, you know, being your friend and because you know, I'm like, Likewise. you're just going to go places. Right. I, I know you are, you're a good person. You're doing the right things and you're going to meet. So Thank and you. those relationships, like they're great. I'm really glad we did. And we had that meeting and I got to meet you and everything else. But what I didn't like is that we all went home. Yeah. And then Absolutely. it was just like over, right? right. And so we all went back to our normal lives. And I'm like, if you're trying to execute and grow and build a, a, a real estate business, especially if you're starting out, that doesn't work. A two-day hype up is awesome. I'm not right. saying it's not. It's great. Right. We all feel right. good. A yeah. month later, you're back to doing the exact same thing. So the inner exactly. circle is every single month. And right. they meet, we do deals, we're underwriting. And it's like, no, this is progression. We, we need to be meeting. We need to be doing that stuff. So that's why I set it up that way, just because yeah. of that. But yeah, so self-storage income is my website plus my podcast. You can go to there. You can uh, get the book. Um, and the book is blue. And it's the Investor's Guide to Growing Wealth and Self-Storage. There's another one with a similar title that I found out about, which was, eh. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, but it's a step-by-step playbook. So mine's blue. It has the most reviews on Amazon. You can pick it up. But if you go to the site, sell storage income and just go in there, that has all the information about me. If you go to Instagram, AJ Osborne, you can DM me, email me. You know, I'm, I should be fairly easy to find. That's awesome, man. And and tell people what the name of your podcast is and what, what self storage income too. And it's the, it's the largest um, self storage podcast in the world. By far, it's not even, if you took all the other self-storage podcasts and combined them, they don't even equal half our size. So it's been so cool. That's and awesome. I love it. And I had no idea there were so many people that were boring uh, so, uh, nerds that are interested in self-storage like me. So that makes me man. really excited. Yeah. I'm like, hey, well, when I'm you're, not when you're, out there. Look, man, when you're getting a 20% <laughs> cash on cash return... You're going to have a lot of people paying attention. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, I, I always go back to, you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger having gotten this historical 21% a year over the life of Berkshire Hathaway. And those guys are, you know, Warren Buffett was the second wealthiest man in the world until recently. I think maybe that's changed, but just, just because he gave it away. If you can compound your money at 20% a year, forget about it, man. I mean, that's going places. So, AJ, man, this has been awesome. Uh, listeners, I would highly recommend you go get AJ's book. Again, the title is Growing Wealth in Self-Storage. AJ's salt of the earth, like incredible guy. AJ, I know you're going places as well. You already have. You're going to even better places going forward. I'm looking forward to seeing what you build with this. And keep me in mind on your on your wholesaling stuff. Oh, well. if, if you find some, some self-storage down my way that you don't want to tackle that's too small, I'm interested and also definitely yeah. interested in the apartments. So, um, yeah, yeah, man, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for, for joining us again. And 
dude. It's uh, I look forward to having you back on my podcast soon. Thanks, man. It was fun. Always fun talking. Catch you next time. See ya. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please connect with me on Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor or via email at josiasmelser at gmail.com. My new book titled Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals is out. You can get it either in digital or physical format on Amazon. Once you've read the book, please leave me a review. Tune in next time for another episode of The Daily Real Estate Investor as we both join in our financial freedom journey.